Welcome to the 62nd edition of Rising Tide, the Ocean podcast. This is David Helvard with my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. And hello, everyone. So today we're honored to be speaking with U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, Monica Medina. Before winning Senate confirmation to this position, Assistant Secretary Medina, a veteran of Georgetown, Columbia Law School, and the U.S. Army, helped link ocean policy and security issues as a special assistant to the Secretary of Defense, general counsel at NOAA, a senior counsel to a U.S. senator, a professor, environmental news publisher. She also worked at National Geographic, among her many other jobs. But before we get into the role of the ocean in U.S. international policy and how we project the blue in our red, white, and blue, let me ask you something that probably goes back to your childhood. You clearly care deeply, so when and how did you first connect to the seas around us? It's such a great question. I think um, everyone uh, has a connection based on their own personal experience, and mine is no different. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, not on the ocean, but we were about a six-hour mi- six drive from the Gulf Coast, the coast of you know the Gulf of Mexico coastline in Florida, and beautiful white sandy beaches. And when we first arrived there, when I was a young child. You could literally walk out into the ocean and scoop up all kinds of beautiful shells and crabs just, you know, were plentiful near the shore. It was just a a ocean paradise in a in a the easiest setting for a kid to get acclimated. The waves weren't particularly big and. We spent a lot of time going crabbing off the dock at the nearby pier. Um, there was a great big state park right nearby, the, the little motel that we would stay in every summer. And um, it was just a wonderful place to just explore the ocean and fall in love with it. And I did. When you were growing up, when you went to, off to college, were you thinking ocean? Were you thinking policy? What were you, you, you became a lawyer. Was it, what was the uh, aim there? The aim there was really to work in the intersection of law and policy and and government. And I came to Georgetown because I loved law and government. And and I was lucky enough um, to get to go to Georgetown on an Army ROTC scholarship, which um, meant I had an Army active duty obligation after that. And there I got uh, to be familiar with the Army Corps of Engineers and all the work they do around keeping our rivers and harbors able to um, to function well and um, sort of the the wrestling between their their missions, uh, some of which have to do with recreation and tourism and others have to do with, you know, the economy and and keeping those vital ports open and, and operating. And my first client in um, as a lawyer was the assistant secretary of the Army for Civil Works. And so it was a great introduction to environmental law. And I kind of fell in love with it. And what was the case? And how did this eventually lead you to uh, assistant to the secretary of defense? Well, it was it was a time when the Water Resources Development Act, which governs how the civil works part of the Army Corps operates, had just been revised. And there was a new provision requiring local cost sharing of all the civil works projects that the Army Corps was responsible for. And we had to implement that. And so it meant a lot of changes to the way the projects were looked at and and the kind of evaluation they got and the kind of local engagement we needed in order to be able to move projects ahead. And eventually I worked on Capitol Hill, 
um, you you referenced that I work for the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, and I I my background in the Army helped because that committee oversees the Civil Works program, and it was 1993, and there had been a year of historic floods along the Mississippi River, and there were calls for reform in the way that the Corps operated the river, and no one else really had the kind of behind-the-scenes experience with how the Army Corps operated other than me on the staff. So I walked in and, and helped to write a water resources bill that had a lot of flood reform in it. It didn't pass, but it was a real education in how those policies make a difference in people's lives and how the river itself connects to the ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. And again, that was my, you know, kind of home Oh, when I was a kid, that was what I loved. So it was, it all felt um, very uh, organic to me to be a part of this, um, the legislative process after having been part of the, you know, the executive process and the Corps of Engineers operations and how they made their policies. Yeah. And that policy component, uh, you know, along with law and then, of course, the science and understanding how things work are so critical for getting things done, not only you know, in the nation, but specifically yeah. in D.C., in the White House, you know, with all of the agencies. So um, what a great background. That is very, very yeah. cool. It's just been a really amazing ride, I have to say. My career has spanned a, a lot of years here in Washington. And from my time in the military, in the Pentagon as a as a baby lawyer, as I say, all the way to now to having this position, having been confirmed by the Senate, having the the chance to work on these global issues at a moment that's so critical and where oceans have sort of come of age, you know, the ocean issues were were pretty um, underappreciated when I first started in NOAA back in the 90s in the Clinton administration. And we helped to, to put on the first ocean conference, a domestic one around the World Ocean Day in 1998. And that also elevated ocean issues in the domestic um, uh, sort of landscape. And uh, we had lots of cabinet secretaries there, President Clinton, Vice President Gore, and First Lady Hillary Clinton all attended the conference in Monterey, California. And, and I was there. It was so exciting. <laughs> it was a moment, wasn't it? And it was. as a young um, person working in, in the Clinton administration, I was so proud to get to be a part of that evolution of ocean issues and bringing them more and more into the public domain. And Leon Panetta was there at that first ocean summit in Monterey and helped establish the Monterey uh, National Marine Sanctuary. In the new century, you, you helped identify several things. One is, is the link, uh, partly from your military background, the link really between a healthy ocean and our national security. And maybe yeah. you can talk a little on that. It's amazing the things I've gotten to be a part of in my time in and out of government. So when I worked for Secretary Panetta, um, we did some some traveling around the world. And one of the trips we took was to China. And we met with now President Xi Jinping. He was the vice president then. And a good part of our discussions were around um, issues of fishing and fishing vessels and um, and it was a real eye-opener about the problem of illegal fishing, um, which has grown and grown since then. And so now in my current job, we hear about this a lot when we travel around the world to coastal countries who are being, um, who are really feeling the, the um, 
the pain of illegal fishing in their waters, taking away some of their very vital food supplies at a moment when we're already seeing food insecurity growing. So um, that is a security concern. It's food and food security are not just because people are, you know, need the food for eating. It's because it can create conflict when they don't have enough. It creates migrations um, and it really destabilizes places. And so it's it's been a real eye opener. And that illegal fishing um, problem is something I worked on after I left the Obama administration. I helped to start a, a program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, a very big defense think tank, looking at illegal fishing and ocean insecurity, the, the, the things that are happening on the high seas that were sort of out of sight, but not really out of mind. If you're in a, a, a laborer on one of those illegal fishing vessels, often you're, you're being very much um, taken advantage of or abused in those, in those situations. There's a huge problem with human rights violations on these illegal fishing vessels. Again, another thing that destabilizes um, countries. So we, um, we've been working on this a lot in my new job. And we just recently at the UN Ocean Conference began a new coalition, a, an alliance of countries trying to work on this illegal fishing problem. It's a global problem. No country can solve it on its own. So we've, we've started to work together with several countries, including the United Kingdom, Canada, Iceland, Japan. The list is growing already. What would be the actual plan to try and uh, rein in the IUU, what many people call pirate fishing? There are several things we need to do. Right now, there are lots of holes in our global system for catching illegal fishing vessels. We don't have a really good handle on them once they leave our waters and go out into international waters, or sometimes they skirt jurisdictions by moving from countries to countries' waters. They know how to evade us. So we need to close our net around them much more. One of the things, there are three things we wanna do. The first thing is to increase transparency, to make it required for all fishing vessels, not right away, but eventually get them all in sight so that we know where they are. Right now, they don't really have to have transponders turned on at all times. They can turn them on and off at will. And that means we can't really track where they're going or what they're doing. We need greater fishing transparency. Second thing we need is greater data sharing and information sharing about the vessels and which ones we think might be um, doing things illegally. And if we could share this information more easily among countries and we could figure out where the vessels are actually flagged or where the beneficial owners are located, we could actually, you know, pull in a much closer, pull them in much closer and try and figure out how to stop those vessels and get them out of the water. Um, and the third thing we need to do is use some of our current legal authorities to better enforce. If we have more transparency, we have better data sharing, when one of those illegal fishing vessels eventually pulls into a port, we could potentially interdict it there based on a treaty called the Port State Measures Agreement. But we get need more countries to join that. So again, if we can do use the authorities we have and expand the number of countries that are participating in, in those kinds of authorities that allow us to take fishing vessels into, into custody or take, take the fish away that's been caught illegally, if we can increase our um, 
cooperation around information about the vessels that are that are we think conducting these illegal activities and if we can have better transparency so that we know which vessels are fishing legally and which ones aren't i think we'll have a much better system we're just starting but i think these if we focus on these three areas we can do a much better job a follow-up question would be that a lot of industrial overfishing isn't pirate fishing um the U.S. in 2006, we reformed our, our Federal Fisheries Act so that, uh, you know, we didn't continue to overfish uh, edible marine wildlife. And it's approaching something like sustainability, rebuilding stocks. But that's a model that's not uh, used globally. And, and, and how do we address not just pirate fishing, but overfishing in general, where it's legally supported by many countries? I think um, there's a growing call for that. You know, it- it used to be thought of that the ocean was sort of too big to fail. And I think we now see as stocks um, are dwindling, particularly valuable ones, more and more countries are interested in better management. But we need to give them the tools to do that. Again, it goes back to some transparency requirements um, and better management so that we know what's coming out of the water from these vessels so that we can tell when they're overfishing, not because it's illegal, but just because it's not sustainable. We don't have a good sense of how much is coming out of the water in a lot of places. And we need much better sense of that in order to get our arms around this problem. And much of the ocean is pretty much in the high sea. So if we're looking at all of these activities within a state's territorial waters, tell us a little bit about how we are moving towards the high seas treaty, some of the things that we can anticipate and how we handle this massive area. Um, where people are just fishing and we really don't have any real strong regulatory authority. So the, the U.S. is working very hard in the context of what we call the BBNJ negotiations. That stands for bio, Biological Resources Beyond National Jurisdiction. Basically, what happens to those high seas marine resources that aren't fish? Fish are covered by a, a lot of agreements that are already in place under the UN Food and Agricultural Organization um, that manage just fisheries. But there's a whole lot of other biological resources that are right now kind of up for grabs in the high seas. And the goal here is to create a, a, a regime whereby we manage those resources to the benefit of everyone. And we understand what's coming out of the ocean and how it might be used. And we create protected areas where nothing could be harvested um, so that we know that we leave some areas pristine and, and um, functioning. So it's a, it's a high, it's a high stakes negotiation in that it, it covers such a huge part of the planet. Um, It's been underway for a long time. There's been discussions about an agreement to cover these areas beyond national jurisdiction for more than a decade. And the negotiations have been going on for, I think, about five years, maybe longer. And we're at the very end. We are we are coming to the final negotiation later in the summer at the UN in New York. And I think there is a, a, a real sense that this is a moment when the world has to come together and create rules around this type of activity in the high seas, in the areas beyond national jurisdiction, where we need to have a strong governance, strong rule of law, and uh, rules of the road, if you will, so that we know 
um, what's coming out of the ocean, and we are able to um, to really make sure that we protect it. What would you like to see? What would the ideal scenario be for a strong high seas treaty from the U.S. perspective? I think it's one that we can join. I'd really like it to be something that we, the U.S., can be a member of. We're not a member of the Law of the Sea Convention, as you know, and that's a real disadvantage to us, um, I think, because it puts us outside of the that legal regime. We abide by it. We consider it customary international law, but we don't get the benefits of being a member of that convention. And so I'd really ideally like it to be something that the world can live with and that the U.S. can participate in fully. Is there any hope? The Law of the Seas Convention, something supported by everybody from Greenpeace to the Pentagon, and yet the U.S. Senate has never ratified it. In the 1980s, I talked with Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina, who was running Foreign Service Committee and said that he didn't want to sign any treaty where the U.S. vote didn't count more than any other nation. Uh, Are we ever going to get on board? You know, never is a long time. And I I just keep hoping that we will. I I can't really predict. Right now, we don't see the votes in the Senate for it. Um, I know the secretary and the president have spoken up in favor of um, us ratifying the law of the sea convention, but uh, it's it's not um, something that we think is likely to happen anytime soon. Well, let's let's stay on the high seas for a moment or the open oceans. A, a U.S. corporation recently got the impoverished nation of Nauru to announce plans for deep sea mining as soon as next year. The mining industry claims they'll provide minerals needed for green energy, batteries and cars. But many scientists and corporations, including Google, BMW, Volkswagen, are already saying they won't buy these minerals until there's a moratorium on uh, drilling to better study and understand the deep sea environment. Uh, Does the U.S. have a position regarding a moratorium on deep sea mining? Well, the U.S. is um, actively uh, engaged in the process of determining what the regulations are now, but only as an observer, because again, we're not a member of the Law of the Sea Convention. So it's really challenging for us. We are no different than um, uh, corporations or nonprofits. We don't get the status of a member of the body that's actually making these decisions right now. And it's a real shame because it puts us at a real disadvantage globally in terms of shaping the rules around this and making sure that they're protective enough of the marine environment. That said, we're doing everything we can to make sure that the negotiators, the, the people who are working on these regulations have the benefit of all the U.S. understanding and know-how. And we really believe that there's a significant amount of scientific uncertainty that still exists around this whole issue. And so we need to know a lot more about how it will impact the marine environment and, and how to protect it before we think it's ready for prime time, if you will. We need to close those gaps and do a lot more research. That said, these regulations are being drafted now. And so we, uh, I hope, will be able to be actively engaged and help to make them as strong and as durable as they can be, given, you know, the needs in the future potentially for these kinds of minerals. And it looks like things are happening on a pretty quick timeline with the extractions beginning, maybe even as early as the summer of 2023. So it doesn't look like we have any regulatory authority to prevent it. So it would be mostly about coming up and supporting strong regulations for protection during the extraction process. Of strong regulations in support of the extraction 
um, the potential for extraction and a lot more research in advance of it. If we can possibly hold off until we know more, we think that's a much better place for the world to be in. There's a lot of scientific um, research that still needs to be done about the impacts of this. We know um, that it, it could be potentially very harmful to the marine environment. Um, because what happens in one place in the ocean doesn't stay that way. Look at plastic pollution. It's everywhere. You know, remember when um, when we had the Fukushima disaster and that nuclear uh, waste washed into the ocean and it ended up all kinds of places. So we know that that oceans are fluid and mm. things don't stay in one place. And so um, I think that calls for precaution when it comes to this kind of activity. One of the ideas that certainly President Biden advances and many others is um, that we should simply set aside as a biological reserve, a, a significant part of the planet. President Biden talks about 30% of land and water protected by 2030. And I know that this is also an international goal. Um, how, how's the US internationally working to, to make that a goal and to make protected areas real and not paper parks? We are very engaged on this. It is a, a priority for the administration. It's something that President Biden cares about himself um, personally has made the promise back in the campaign for uh, 30% of the U.S. ocean being protected and the U.S. land being protected by 2030. And, um, and we want to help other countries do the same thing. So we've been working to try to help other nations reach that 30% goal. Right now, one of the things we need to do um, is help them find a way to finance this kind of long-term protection. So we recently signed a memorandum of understanding with the countries of Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, and Costa Rica that created something called CMAR, which is a corridor for marine protection in the Eastern Tropical Pacific. It includes the Galapagos. And they're trying to create a, a world heritage bio-reserve among these four protected areas that are connected um, biologically, the, there's great amount of um, marine uh, marine life that traverses them, and they're really unique and special and pretty well preserved, pretty pretty intact as far as marine ecosystems go. And so we're hoping to help them by doing this. Colombia has, I think, Colombia and Costa Rica, several of the countries have now reached their 30% goal because of creating this reserve, um, which is wonderful. So that's the kind of thing the US is doing. We're gonna try to help them protect them so that they're not paper parks by helping them do that kind of illegal fishing enforcement that we think um, will, will keep those illegal fishers out of the protected areas. And also narco traffickers, which are using them for safe havens for narcotic um, trafficking. Golly, we've got a, you know, mm -hmm. we've got a real national interest in that. So. Those are the kinds of things that we're doing. We, we'd like to help the Pacific Island nations as well with some of the protected areas like Palau has, has created a large marine protected area in their EEC. We want to help them create, keep that going and also have a sustainable blue economy. We're also working very hard again on the outskirts of the meeting. There's something called the Convention for Biological Diversity. Um, it is what it is to nature what the climate cop is to climate. It is the global effort at sustaining biodiversity, nature, wildlife, trees, all the things that we need to have a healthy planet um, are, are um, being protected under this convention. The U.S. is not a member, but we sit as an observer and what, what that convention is trying to do, and it meets later this year, is create a 30% protection goal for the entire planet. 
and we are in support of that and working very hard to, to help other countries achieve that goal of a global um, mandate for protecting 30% of the planet, ocean and land by 2030. We don't have to talk about the amount of trouble our coral reefs are in both in the US and internationally, but can you talk a little bit about that and what some of the goals are within that new plan of action? Yes, the U.S. is so pleased to be leading that plan of action. And of course, you know, there's nothing um, that I think people can relate to more in the ocean than those reef systems that are such a part of our vision, our view of what the ocean is um, and what a vibrant ocean looks like. And so we do have a four pillar plan and we are busy, um, I think, trying to figure out how we can implement it best. We um, are really uh, keen to get as many other countries involved in this plan as we possibly can. And um, we, we need more funding for coral reef protection. I think that's a, a huge area of potential growth. Um, we know that there's a lot of um, room for, or a lot of work to do in coral reef restoration. We know many reefs have been hit. So we know that that that's an area that we can, um, I think, expand our knowledge. I've actually been to a natural, a national estuarine reser research reserve, a NERS site in Hawaii, where they're testing what types of corals react best to, to climate stressors and, and how long it takes for them to come back and how well we can reseed coral reefs that have been injured, that have been harmed by um, bleaching events um, or other stressors. And uh, frankly, you know, we're looking at, you know, how do we um, improve uh, the, you know, kind of restoration of these places where we know there's going to be climate impact. So there's, a, there's just so much work to do. And coral reefs are, I think, um, you know, something that we're very pleased to be engaged in internationally in that conservation effort. Not to mention protecting the ones that are intact, which is so important. We've lost half the world's coral reefs in the blink of an eye. We've lived our lives, and uh, and the Great Barrier Reef has seen this, you know, loss of half of its corals within the last decade. And so we're we're in a crisis point. Restoration is good, but uh, there's also a state of emergency. I know I spoke at a recent uh, Ocean Climate Summit with some leaders of island nations, and they're asking things like. They want to retain their rights, their EEZs, their exclusive economic zones after their people are displaced. And, and it's kind of scary to think of the rights of sunken nations, but that's that's something that uh, is, is actually on the table now at the UN, which is the rights of, of island nations to retain their, their waters, the rights to their waters, even when they may not be able to live on those waters anymore. It's such an interesting thing because people who live in big land countries don't really think of the ocean as part of their country and yet for these islands that is their country and the way they um you know think about their country is completely different than we do and and so it's a you know these are issues that we have to come to grips with the biden administration is just committed to uh leasing out more offshore oil and gas uh and can, can we be a global leader on, on climate if we're still continuing to uh, drill for new oil and gas? Let me just say, this is outside of my realm that <laughs> falls under the Interior Department, and I don't want to step on anything that my colleagues are working on. Those five-year plans, you know, they come out every five years. It's just a draft plan. 
So we'll see what happens there. I do think we will always be a leader in conservation globally because of the, the work that we do. And I, I think, um, you know, when you look at the leadership we have, when we have somebody like Special Presidential Envoy Kerry, you know, really actually driving progress on climate, unlike almost any other leader anywhere in the world. He is single-handedly focused on this full time. There's there's no other climate negotiator out there that holds a candle to him. And, and that puts the US in a unique position of leadership. Everywhere I go, people thank me for the US being engaged in these issues. And, um, and that's what keeps me going. We need to be thinking circular all the time and eliminating waste and finding ways to use what we used to think of as waste in ways that will be more sustainable. So at the UN Ocean Conference, we did a what we called a shark tank. It was a pitch competition among entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs with good ideas that they we they they came to us looking for funding. And we we brought on an expert panel of um, marine ecologists and um, and business people. And they judged this pitch competition. And one of the one of the competitors came from Egypt, and he had a business where he was taking the fish waste from small fishing boats and turning it into fish feed for aquaculture in Egypt. He was great. So you know that's that's the kind of ingenuity and and innovation we need. Um, and and you know seeing those young people with their ideas. Some of them had to do with ocean plastic. Some had to do with fisheries. Some had to do with uh, kelp restoration. Um, they were great. We're, we're facing these cascading natural disasters and not quite natural disasters. And at the same time, we're seeing the traditional disasters like, uh, you know, war. And I wonder how the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example, is impacting your ability to deal with the uh, ocean issues collaboratively uh, around the high seas or the polar regions or just how much that disrupts uh, the ability to address the issues you need to address? Um, it's it's clearly a challenge. Uh, and I um, I know we've we've uh, come up with some ways to continue to do research as much as we can, say through the Arctic Council without, you know, reconvening the council. We are, um, you know, thinking about uh, the the ways to move ahead um, in lots of fora, despite the fact that, you know, we have this war going on, this terrible war that we decry everywhere we go. Um, you know, every time we go to an, a UN meeting, we we make sure to say that we are opposed and and strongly believe that this is just a terrible um, thing. And uh, and we have a group of people in my uh, in the bureau here uh, that are working to actually assess the damage from the war in Ukraine to look at the environmental harms being done. Both, um, there are some in the ocean, but a lot of them are on land and assess the environmental damage so that they can make a reparation claim that would fully account for the environmental harms being caused by the war. So we are we are engaged at lots of levels um, in dealing with the impacts of it. And it is, it is always on our mind, but we can't lose focus on these issues. And we know we have to keep plowing ahead and find ways to make progress despite them. So when you mentioned um, fossil fuel use, to me that ties also into plastic pollution. And that is a biggie. And we're all talking about it around the country. And we've been a big supporter of the Save Our Seas 2.0 
you know, especially given the political climate, like let's just get something through. It's not the end all. There's still a lot of work, but now with the, the new funding internationally and bringing uh, 14 new countries in, how do you envision that the Save Our Seas plastic initiative will be implemented and that will really see a difference in our quality of life for the animals and people around plastic and the ocean? And, and maybe explain what that is. So it's a it's a, a law that allows us to be much more engaged on um, on plastic pollution in the environment, and it's part of a bigger international effort to come up with a global agreement to end plastic pollution. Um, and we are hoping that it will be a Paris-like agreement with national uh, plans for um, for uh, eliminating plastic pollution, particularly plastic pollution that ends up in the ocean, but we've made a conscious effort that we needed to address the full life cycle of plastics in order to get to that result that kept plastic pollution out of the environment, particularly out of the marine environment. So we were were really excited because in um, March, uh, we got together in um, Nairobi for the UN Environment Assembly um, and uh, launched this negotiation of a global agreement to end plastic pollution, and it was unanimous. And we, um, I think, really are on a trajectory to come up with a global mechanism for ending plastic pollution. Um, and the negotiations will go on for the next two years. It'll end at a time, it'll end in an agreement that we hope will look a lot like the Paris Agreement. And each country will have its own national action plan that will be held accountable to achieve a standard. We haven't agreed on what it is yet. We haven't even had the first negotiating session that will happen this fall. Um, but I'm optimistic because there is so much, I think, um, exhaustion from plastic. Everyone everywhere is tired of the amount of plastic that we are sort of s stuck with. Um, we see way too much plastic pollution and um, we're sort of drowning in plastic right now. And and there is great agreement between um, governments, nonprofits, and uh, civil society and corporations that we need to get our hands around this problem. We're, we're seeing it in the food chain. We're seeing it in the deepest part of the ocean. We're seeing it at the highest mountaintops. We're seeing it from pole to pole. We're drowning in plastic. So there's a, I think this is a moment when we will hopefully get our hands around this problem and and change um, the trajectory that we're on. And, and one more issue I wanna jump in on, um, which really started here in California with Geraldine Natz, the first woman, the first marine biologist to run a major port in Los Angeles and started the greening ports and shipping movement. Um, and this is now a big global ocean issue. Um, how is the US going to contribute to seeing the transition, decarbonizing our ports and, and our global shipping fleet? We think this is a crucial part of the climate um, solutions that we need. These are major, um, a major part of our economy is shipping. And right now it's not nearly clean enough and so we're working through the IMO. We have a major um, initiative on greening shipping, and we're working to push the IMO to have tougher standards on carbon pollution from ships. And we're working to try and create green corridors for shipping and to see a lot more um, 
green uh, transportation in the ocean. So um, everything from uh, electric uh, uh, ferries to, um, you know, electrifying ports in a way that, you know, takes away a lot of the pollution that we see, air pollution around our ports that's really harmful to the communities that live nearby. And, and we're now burning some of the dirtiest fuels in our marine transportation system. So that is a we big a sector that we could really work on um, by and, getting and, that cleaned up. And the IMO is the International Maritime Organization. It's a UN agency that's been historically pretty weak on this. So they could use the pressure. They, they are, I think we are engaged on that and they know that we are, we are determined. So um, I, again, I'm optimistic the shipping industry knows they need to clean up their act. So uh, slowly but surely, we are not gonna make progress in a minute, but we are steadily making progress. So I was very impressed when uh, John Kerry came in as Secretary of State under the Obama administration that you're there now to have actual ocean champions in U.S. foreign policy roles, actually focusing on the other 71% of our blue planet. On your day-to-day experiences, uh, on the range of frustrated to satisfied, uh, one to 10, where, where are you landing on that scale right now? Gosh, I'm never satisfied. If you know me, I'm never, I think if we, if we achieve something, then we've got to find the next thing. I think that is the nature of being in this environmental world, because to the extent we're finding progress, we're also doing things that we know might have impact. So you can never say, oh, we got it all solved. We always have to be taking care of the planet that we live on. We always have to have stewardship as a, you know, a North Star. And so I guess I'm never, never satisfied, but I'm very happy to be doing this job at this moment because this is a pivotal year for oceans and we're in a pivotal time for making the kinds of transitions and, and real sea changes that we need in order to have a more sustainable future. So I, I spend most of my time um, really thinking, what's the next thing I can do and, and digging into that. I'm feeling very optimistic talking with you because so often we are focusing in on the negative and how can we make these incremental steps. Um, but you have such knowledge of, you know, such a huge part of our planet and having you as our champion and so enthusiastic and so, you know, well-versed in all of this really gives me confidence that we are making good strides and that we still have time to really make a difference. And, and so Monica Medina, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, thank you so much for being with us on Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. Yes, thank it was you. a pleasure. Well, and I have to say congratulations, Dave, uh, David, on two, 20 years of your Blue Frontiers work. And you've just always been, both of you have always been such champions and I'm such a fan and have, have always been. And I'm just uh, so excited to have had a chance to participate today. Thanks. Thank you. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org 
or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.